your Bibles with me this morning and let's open our copy of the scriptures to the book of Titus. The book of Titus, it is near the end of the Christian New Testament. Uh, is right uh, before the book of Philemon, the small little book Philemon, right after the book of 2 Timothy. I'm grateful this morning to uh, be able to have done a baby dedication for Nathan and Katie. It is a great privilege after years of service among a single church family to be able to see young people grow in their faith and in their relationships. I remember when I first came on staff and began serving in this ministry, I think Nathan was in seventh or eighth grade. So to see him now at this point is a great joy to see him wanting to walk with the Lord. I was encouraged with the text that they chose that especially expressed a heart of humility and a heart that understands the significance of the role of parenting. I hope you're encouraged in that as well as we seek to Build one another up in our faith together. One professor of New Testament survey shares this of believers' tendency perhaps to underestimate the value of this little uh, three-chapter letter of Titus. He says, each year as I teach New Testament survey, I have my students list the books of the New Testament and answer a few basic questions. Which books do you know a lot about? Which books do you think you know little or nothing about? Why do you think you know more about some books than others? Titus, he says, never fares well in this basic survey. Now, while this might be expected in some ways, two students' responses from the most recent term, he says, are especially revealing. One student said she had more exposure to certain books... Because they have more value and application than others do. Titus was singled out as an example of one with less value and application. Another student wrote, quote, I am unfamiliar with the teachings of Titus and Philemon, possibly due to their short length and lack of profoundly deep insight. And then he said, they have insight, just not profound. I'm not degrading any books of the Bible, unquote. And yet this has not always been the view of this letter. I know it may seem obscure to us. Perhaps you're a bit unfamiliar with this letter. But Martin Luther wrote concerning the letter to Titus, this is a short epistle, but a model of Christian doctrine in which is comprehended in a masterful way all that is necessary for a Christian to know and live. This is a striking commendation for an oft-neglected epistle. A masterful summary of all that is necessary for a Christian to know and live. As I've been studying through this letter again and again, I think Luther is probably right. This letter summarizes the essence of the Christian life, particularly with a view to what the Christian community, what healthy churches what productive churches, what growing churches are to do. I believe the letter to Titus is a tract, a compact summary for our times. And the church today bears the marks of having neglected its message. We think that doing church, that ministry, is all these other things perhaps. But it really is quite simple. 
And Titus gives us a simple but very clear message. Now we'll see in this four-verse introduction several key pieces of information. The letter is from Paul. We read in verse 1 to Titus, verse 4, as he ministers on the island of Crete, verse 5. It's important to note that although this is a personal letter, it was intended to be read and heard by the early church. It's as if Paul is speaking to Titus, but he's speaking to him knowing that there's congregations, there's churches behind him. They're meant to hear and overhear this instruction. They're meant to know what Paul is telling Titus to do among them. We know that this is true because we see it in the opening verse. Paul says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Titus and Paul traveled together probably up to this point for several years Titus was well accustomed to Paul's ministry. So does Titus need to be informed that Paul is a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ? Now certainly Paul wants certain truths to be reemphasized. He wants Titus to dwell on these. But he wants these believers to know these things even more. Now we can see this most explicitly then in the close of the letter. The very last words are grace be with you all. Not grace be with you, Titus. Grace be with you all. Therefore, the conclusion, though this is a personal letter, it's intended for churches. It's intended for our church, for us to hear. Now, we don't know exactly how many churches Paul is writing to through Titus. It would have probably been several in the major cities on that small island. We're told in Acts 2 that there were Cretans among those who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They heard Peter preaching the good news. Some of them came to faith and they went back home to Crete to share what Christ had done in their lives. We know later that in Paul's journeys, as he's headed to Rome for the first time, they stop off on the island of Crete. But we're not told any more about what happens there in Paul's ministry on that island. So we know that there are believers present, but there are also false teachers in these infant and fledgling churches. These churches are struggling. They're not healthy. They're not productive. They're not stable or mature. They're also surrounded by a Cretan culture that is known for flagrant immorality and dishonesty. So how will Titus accomplish the work the Lord, through Paul, has given him? To what must he continually be committed in order to develop and promote the health of these churches? And then moving from them then to us now, to what what must we as a church, be continually committed if we would be biblically healthy and honoring to our Lord. We're going to see in the introduction that God's servants must be committed to simple, clear, but powerful gospel teaching, which leads to godliness among God's people. Let's read Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is not a normal sentence, and that's okay. We'll examine it together as we go, asking for the Lord's help. This is the word of our God, Paul, a servant of God 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies this God promised before the ages even began and then at the proper time manifested or revealed his word through the preaching with which I, Paul, have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's ask for his help as we consider this text together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes. You would open our ears to hear the truths of your word. You would give us wisdom to know how to apply it. You would help us to see our Christ, to magnify our God, who has accomplished our great salvation. And you have not left us alone so that we would just have fire insurance to know that we have eternal life. You've saved us to live a completely different way, to live in the power of the gospel and demonstrate your incredible power in the life of sinners. May we strive to that end as your people. Give us grace now as we consider this text together. In Jesus' name, amen. These four verses contain a glimpse of what will come in the rest of the short letter. Though this letter is brief, it's only 46 verses. It takes five to six minutes to read out loud. It's a a letter you can be reading as we go through this series. It highlights some very important truths that every body, every church must hold to with deep conviction if it would demonstrate the power of the gospel to change sinners. As the church, we want to demonstrate to God's glory what gospel power among sinners looks like. We want to grow more and more healthy. We want to reflect the glory of our God. And honor him in the way that we live and speak of him and live before him among one another. This morning we'll consider four simple points from this rather complex sentence. This rather complex introduction. These points are not original with me. That's probably why they're alliterated. We will see from the text Paul's position, his purpose, his preaching, and his partner. So first, Paul's position. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself with two titles. Two titles describing his role. First, he calls himself God's servant, and then as Christ's apostle or messenger. Now, Paul uses this second description as apostle most often in the 13 letters that he's written in those introductions. In just two others, in Philippians and Romans, he calls himself the servant or bond slave of Christ. But here alone, he calls himself the servant of God. What you'll notice if you'll look carefully, and we'll talk about this more as we go, these first four verses are very God-centered. God the Father is on Paul's mind. He's probably addressing a weakness in these churches. But consider that Paul's life and identity is not bound up in how he wants others to see him, but in who God has called him and equipped him to be. 
This is instructive for us in a world where we're all chasing something for identity. Paul says, my identity is linked to who I am before a holy God. Think about all the things that Paul could have said about himself in this introduction. This is an incredible man. Some would say he's had more influence in the world than any other human in living history. He's now an older man in ministry, but he's well accomplished in the faith. He could have said, I'm Paul, the church planter. I've planted scores of churches, so you probably should listen to me. I know how it's done. He could have said, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And though I've been saved out of a wrong view of the Messiah from the Jews, I have been learned in the law from the time I was a boy. I know God's word. So you should probably listen to me. He could have said, I received one of the best educations a Jew could ever received. I'm welcomed in any synagogue I go to in all the known world. He could have said, I have influence and rapport among the other apostles, those who walked and talked with Jesus himself. They've listened to my counsel. They've heard that I'm a wise person that that wants good for the churches. He could have said, I have even been transported to heaven to receive revelation from God himself. Or maybe even more importantly, he could have said, I have seen with my own eyes the risen Christ. But what does he say? I am Paul, a slave of God, a slave of God a servant. In a letter that will focus much attention on leadership in the church, this is a very, very important first description and title, isn't it? You see, Paul doesn't see himself as someone who should be given the right to exercise leadership and influence because of his years of service, because of his gifting or his education Or his force of personality. He sees himself first and foremost as a servant of God. His life, his ministry, his message is not his own. That's what he's saying here in these first four verses. He serves God for the sake of God's people. For their benefit. This is not beneath him. He's following in the footsteps of his king, Jesus Christ, who's called the suffering servant in Isaiah. This is the path of every true believer. This is how we're to be identified as servants of the most high God. What he says goes. He is Lord. Can you see the important lesson this models for us as we think of leadership among God's people? It's to be radically different from the leadership we see exercised in the world. When we hear the word leadership, we just fill in the blanks with all the kinds of things we're seeing talked about as leadership in our world. 
Think of it. Our world's leaders take position and power so they can do all their will. Paul says, I become a servant to do all God's will. Leadership in the church among God's people is not about exercising influence or authority over others. It's not about being affirmed in your abilities, in your gifts. It's about humble service. It's asking over and over again and being passionate, what do God's people need? It's answering, they need the word again and again and again. They might need me to serve here or there, but God's people need God's word. Think of how this is modeled so clearly in Christ. Jesus said, he, the son of man, the king of all kings, did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark 10 says, even the son of man. Paul does not emphasize any of his credentials here except his bondage to God's will. So the first thing that we as a church should be looking for in church leaders is humble, sacrificial service. Men, you should be known first and foremost as a godly man. Not for your great ideas or your energy, your winning personality or your long experience, but for your humble service. We're going to see as Titus is told by Paul, this happens first at home. This begins in the home amongst the family. A loving Christian leader in the home doesn't lead by dictate, by command, but by modeling humble sacrificial service that's convicting isn't it this should be true for every believer not just men jesus tells us that greatness doesn't come from striving to get the seat above our brother or sister but by taking the lower seat do you see how godliness looks like god honoring service for the sake of the people of god you have to be committed to his mission and his plan and his purposes Do you see leadership as more about a position or more about serving God's people his way? That may even include unrecognized, menial tasks. Now, before you think, well, that's just what you think because you're trying as a pastor to get more people to serve. That's not true. I want you to hear the motivation. Jesus was the greatest leader who ever lived. I think we'd agree with that. And the king of glory washes his doubtful, fearful, even betraying disciples' feet. Even the one who would betray him to the the Pharisees and end his life. This is the way of our master. Godly leadership very often then includes suffering and hardship for the people of God. Godly leadership in the home and in the church is, I'm the first one to sacrifice what I want. That's what leadership is in God's economy. Is that what you are willing, even eager to do for your family, for your church family? 
Think of all that Christ suffered and how so much of what he did was not recognized or well-received. Think of all that Paul suffered, that list of all that he goes through, facing beatings and even death for the sake of the gospel and the building up of churches. If you don't have this mindset, you're probably not ready to lead yet. That's how significant humble service is in the church. So can I ask, are you known for your humility, for your service to others? Have you come to believe that leadership means getting recognition for your gifts or your wisdom? Notice Paul is humbly placing himself under the authority of God as the servant of God's people. They aren't going to appreciate it in his lifetime. And that's okay. But that's what gives him such great influence. That's why we're still reading this word today. His humble, willing, obedient service. Does that describe you in your home, among your co-workers, among your family? Young people, this isn't just a message for parents or adults. Are you a servant among your roommates, to your parents, to your siblings? Or are you pushing and shoving in your own heart, in your own mind, maybe even physically to get the recognition your heart tells you that you deserve? Paul's position was a man under the authority of God for the sake of God's people, no matter what that cost him. He would give his life for his Lord and Christ's people. And that's true spiritual leadership. That's a convicting truth for me. What does true spiritual leadership cost us? Are we willing to give that? It's easy to serve others until we're treated like a servant. But that's what Christ-like leadership looks like. It looks like Christ washing his disciples' dirty feet. Matthew Henry wrote, The highest officers in the church are but servants. This is Christ's call to every believer, modeled so well by this first description that Paul gives to himself. Second, we'll move quickly to Paul's purpose. In verse 1, the second half, Paul explains why he is God's servant and Christ's apostle. He passionately serves, we see, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul understands his entire purpose in life is to fulfill Christ's commands to make disciples. He proclaims the gospel, leading those whom God has chosen to faith and teaching them sound doctrine that leads to changed lives. Now, first, why does Paul here use this phrase, God's elect? We sometimes stumble over that. That is challenging for us in several ways. We're given something of the mind of God in salvation and we can't quite wrap our minds around it. That's okay. Why does he use this phrase? I believe it's to encourage us that God will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Titus, you're not in a failing mission. God will gather his people into churches and honor himself 
no matter how clumsy, no matter how inadequate you might be, no matter how immature these churches might be, God will accomplish all his will. Listen to how Luke characterizes the effect of the gospel proclaimed in Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now here's the point of this truth, the encouragement. God delights to pursue and rescue sinners. Salvation is of our God and we're grateful for that because in our own sinfulness, we are blind to the goodness and grace of our rightful king. We rebel against him in the freedom of our will. We always choose sin because from birth we are sinners and rebels. And yet God pursues such rebels. Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 2, Paul makes clear that salvation comes entirely by God's grace. Faith is a gift so that no one may boast, he says. Because Paul wants God to receive all the praise. And here's what he's saying. We're not believers today because we're smarter than somebody next to us. We're not believers because we're more spiritually aware or sincere or pliable toward God. We're not believers today because we're just more favored by God. And certainly not because we've done any great works That God's taken notice of. Scripture emphasizes again and again that God is gracious and merciful to those who do not deserve his grace and mercy. That's the burden of Scripture. It's not to try to help us figure out all of the mind of God when how salvation works in every particular. We're simply to praise him for his marvelous grace, for the mercy we don't deserve. Therefore, the better we understand this grace, the more eager we are to obey him and tell others of our God who's able to save sinners. So a passage like this affirms that salvation from beginning to end is the sovereign work of God's grace to the praise of his glory. And yet, no person will be saved who does not repent and believe this good news. Have you believed? Have you believed? Do you know what it is to be saved? To know the truth of the gospel that is radically changing you, transforming you from the inside out. As a tree is changed in spring from being dead to alive with new growth. Even that picture is insufficient because a tree is not dead in the winter. As sinners, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God miraculously gives us life when we come to faith in him. Every person who turns to Christ from their sin will be saved. So we want to share the gospel with every man, woman, and child we meet. Because God delights to save sinners and he's told his people to proclaim this good news proclaim it wherever you go to the ends of the world so paul is on mission because god is paul delights to declare the gospel because god delights for it to be declared 
That's what this entire introduction is about. This work is vital. It's the most important part of the life of any Christian, no matter what vocation or job you do. Paul regularly emphasized the significance of his call to those to whom he was writing. In Romans 1, 5 and 6, he writes, Though through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.10, he writes, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, God's people. So that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says elsewhere something that's mind-boggling. He would be willing to be cursed in order for others to know Christ. I don't understand how he could say that. But that's how passionate he is about this mission. Now there's a sequence here that Paul is describing. It's a chain reaction in spiritual terms. He talks about the faith of God's elect, faith in Christ, that leads then to a greater knowledge of the truth, which then leads to greater growth in godliness. We continue growing on our faith because we are completely confident of the life to come. He says there in verse 2, in hope of eternal life. Now notice there's no false dichotomy in Paul's thought between knowledge of the truth and the practice of the truth. John Stott writes, it's an essential feature of truth and a good test of its authenticity that since it comes from God, it leads to God, closeness to God. Any doctrine which does not promote true godliness is manifestly bogus or false. He's saying, Paul is saying, you can't be saved and live any way you want to. Religion emphasizes that we do good to get God to do good for us. But only the gospel motivates us to love God and others because we've been so loved by him. Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, makes this point that this is a missing component in much of Christian life today. He writes, many believers have willingly embraced Christian freedom. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But he says, without, they're missing an equal pursuit of Christian virtue. Tim Chester writes of how the gospel is supposed to produce godliness. As our faith grows in knowledge, so we will grow in godliness. The more we understand what God has done for us in Christ, the more we will love him and live for him. True biblical knowledge always produces true gospel obedience. Is that bearing itself out in your life? Are you living in a way that says the gospel is powerful to change sinners? First phrase now in verse 2 can be difficult to understand how it works in this sequence. It could mean that the believer's faith and knowledge rest on the hope. The foundation is eternal life. Or it may fit back with the phrase, for the sake of, revealing now a third purpose of Paul's ministry. He's an apostle enslaved to Christ for the sake of the faith, for the sake of their knowledge, which leads to godliness, and for their hope in eternal life. And maybe it's just best to keep both options in mind, because they're both true. 
We're to see that eternal life here, though, doesn't just mean life that goes on forever. This isn't just a ticket to heaven. This is life shared with God. It's life eternal. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and they might have it in abundance. This life is shared with God because he is eternal and we are in fellowship with him so we share in his eternal life. The emphasis isn't just on quantity or length of time, but on quality. It means that we're to continually keep this eternal mindset. We saw this over and over in the letter of 1 Peter. We grow in faith and in knowledge that leads to godliness because we are confident of the life to come. Because we know that this isn't all there is. Because we know there's coming a day where we will stand with our king. We're not laying up treasure here on earth. And the way that Paul's going to apply this in the rest of the letter is that we must be building up other believers through sound teaching from God's word. How do we, how do you fully embrace this eternal mindset? How do we set aside the things of this life that often distract us, that become more important than they should? How do we make sure that we're prioritizing what God prioritizes? We immerse ourselves in this message, in the word of God, together seeking to proclaim the truth of the gospel to one another and to those who do not know him. Third, we see Paul's preaching. He now focuses on the value of preaching. The first thing we should notice is this emphasis on the work of God the Father. In these opening verses, the Father is referred to seven times. And notice, there is no controlling verb here. If you're trying to understand this section, as I worked on all week, I'm trying to say, what is it that Paul is saying? I get the subject, Paul, and then no verb. I I don't know what Paul exactly is doing. That doesn't come till later in the letter. It's a greeting. It's Paul to Titus. I'm not supposed to have one. But there's a lot that's come in between. What Paul is focusing on is the work of God. God is acting. God is at work. The God who never lies, who always speaks truth, promised before the ages ever began, and revealed that we can have eternal life. Through faithful preaching. Paul concludes verse 3 by arguing this was not his own idea. But God the Savior's plan. The gospel and all its implications and results originated with God. Now we might give mental assent to that. But Paul is saying you must believe that deep in your bones. In the fiber of your being. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Because it's his. Do we live like that? That's the implications the gospel makes. It's his work. So Paul's going to eagerly and energetically invest in that work. So God is identified as the one whom Paul serves. Think about it. That's back in verse 1. The one who has chosen believers, verse 1 again. The one who promised life before the ages began, verse 2. The one who revealed the gospel through Paul's preaching, verse 3. And the one who does so in order to save sinners, verse 3 again. Paul sees no greater 
purpose for his life than to invest all his energy into the building up of God's people through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Do you see how important this should be to the people of God? Do you see how important this should be to the ministers of God? This is the tool we have to call people to life. It's not great programs. It's not creative ideas. It's not the newest inventions for the church. Here's our philosophy of ministry. Proclaim the word. And God through his spirit will call people to life. And God's people need to hear that word again and again and again and again. Because the gospel changes his people. This is not just some temporal mission. It's not a compassionate rescue mission of people trapped in a dangerous situation. In a temporal way. This is an eternally significant purpose. There are people trapped in their sins. We have children in our homes that do not know Christ. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Enlivening their minds to hear the truths of God's word. You can't convince them of the truth. It doesn't come from discipline or good arguments or even a great model. It comes through the work of God. This is even the mission within our own homes, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Can you see the perspective Paul is seeking to provide to us? It's really basic, but it's really profound. Paul's overwhelmed by the majesty and significance of this plan. He writes in Ephesians 3, 7 through 11, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. He's going to say, although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. I didn't deserve this. To preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. To make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, this is his plan. This group, through the church, the manifold, the multifaceted, the splendid, the magnificent wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Those who we don't see and are watching, glorifying God, the angelic hosts, marvel at what God is doing through the church. As awkward and unwieldy as we are sometimes, as needy as we are, this was all according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you see the scope that Paul's providing? This is a big deal. The church is a big deal. It's worth giving our lives to. It's the only thing that goes into the next life. We saw that Peter shares this same awe and passion when he writes in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you, the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Notice the time elements there in verses 2 and 3. They demonstrate that your salvation and mine is not some divine afterthought. This is not some secondary action. This is not a backup plan. 
He says that before the ages began, he planned it down to the last detail. The Godhead united in this plan to glorify themselves throughout the ages in the church to display God's wisdom. God's plan to demonstrate his power and glory in the world before the watching angelic host is to save and to gather sinners into churches made up of Cretans, liars, sinners, those who are formerly ignorant and dead in their sins. Do you see how incredible, miraculous, unnatural to human ability this truly is? We want to be a church that says this credit for all that God is doing can only go to him. We couldn't conceive of this. Jesus promises, I will build my church. In Acts 20, Paul says that the elders are to preach and teach, to watch their lives, to watch over the flock because Christ spilled his blood for his sheep. In order to create this gathering of God's people, this is no mere meeting that we plan out every Sunday on our calendars. This is no ordinary gathering. What we see from Paul is that he can never get away from the importance of preaching and spreading the news of God's action. Nor from the privilege he felt in being called to serve God in this way. That's what it means to be in a servant. To being a messenger. I don't have to worry about the message. I just get to tell it. I just get to serve this God who really does all the work. What a great job description. Each and every pastor has been entrusted to serve God's people in this same way with this same message. And each and every believer has been called to invest his or her life in this growth and this health that's promoted through the gospel. Lastly, Paul's partner. Paul calls Titus his true or legitimate son in the faith. This provides Titus with significant and authority a significant authority and influence as these churches listen in. He has a close and warm relationship with this respected apostle and serves at his instruction. There's this close companionship. Paul's invested his life in Titus. And yet the ground is level at the foot of the cross because he share, says they share a common faith. There's no super saints in the church. Though they're from very different backgrounds. Think of it. Paul is a Jew who had been walking with God and serving him for years, having all the privileges of his background and education. And we know that Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile from the book of Galatians. And yet they share the same faith in Christ. They're one in him. Do you see the inherent respect and love with which we should view other believers? with which we should view one another. The gospel demonstrates both our need as sinners and our value as those for whom Christ died. The unity the gospel provides is to be promoted and defended and valued among us. It's not our unity, so we have a great club 
or a great community. It's the unity he's given to us through our identity in Christ. Do you see that? It's not ultimately about us. Your brothers and sisters are Christ. And that should both humble and encourage us in our interactions with one another. Our passage this morning encourages us to consider that our God desires our church family, Road Baptist Church, to grow together in godliness by his grace. That's a pretty ordinary Christian statement, isn't it? But think about the profoundness of it, the significance of it eternally, spiritually. In this passage, Paul highlights the significance of the gospel of God. What tools has God provided to Titus to help these churches grow toward God-glorifying health? They're the same tools he provides to every pastor, every believer, every church. We have the word of truth. We have the gospel and the God who gives life through that word. And that is sufficient. How do we think and apply this text to our lives? I tried to make it simple. Four words. Serve, adorn, learn, and invest. Each of them line up with the four main points. God has called every believer to serve even as the Son of Man has served him. So with what tools are you serving your God whose servant you are? Are you helping others walk in knowledge that produces godliness? Paul will write in chapter 2 that we're to live in such a way that our lives, our character, our actions will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That's what Paul has been saying he's teaching. For the sake of God's elect, for the faith of God's elect, for knowledge that accords with godliness. Adorn the doctrine of God. Are you growing in grace so that others see him through the way that you live? Grace inspires godliness. Salvation motivates humble service. This means then thirdly that we must grow and learn how the gospel trains us to say no to the ungodliness that remains in our hearts and to say yes to godliness. We see this explained in chapter 2. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ compels us not to live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose for us. So what is shaping your thoughts and behavior? Are you just trying like, you know, New Year's Day to make some good resolutions to be a better person? Can I encourage you as you've probably experienced with those resolutions that doesn't last very long. You can't change yourself by your will. The gospel must produce it from the inside out. Is it love of God that's changing you? Is it concern for your reputation that you shape how people see you? Are you actively fighting your sin because of his grace or have you grown passive? Even lazy, tolerating sin habits that should not be named among Christians. And lastly, in whom are you investing? We're not surprised that Paul's writing to yet another companion in the faith. Investing in another co-worker who's investing in yet more believers. Building up healthy churches. 
You see, that's God's plan for our sanctification and growth. Believers investing in other believers. Believers sharing the gospel with those who do not know him. We invest our lives into others within the church. Nothing else but these relationships go with us into the next life. We need to be reminded of that. Nothing. Not the house, the car, the bank account, whatever you're counting on for security. It does not go with you. Just those that you've helped move toward Christ. Do we realize that? Do we invest our time, our energy, our passion with that truth in mind? So in whom are you investing? Not what program here at church. In what person? An unbelieving neighbor or friend, a fellow member in need of encouragement. How? How? With what tools are you investing? Is it just listening to the hardships that they're having or are you speaking truth? Listening is very important. But God's people, all of us need to hear more of God's word. Paul in this text is showing us he's willing to give his energy, his wholehearted devotion to the church, his life to God's causes for his people because God was willing to send his own son to save Paul from his sin to save sinners. This message is worth investing in, isn't it? Is the gospel motivating and training you to serve, to adorn, to learn, to invest for the sake of others, for the sake of our King? Let's pray. Our great King and Savior, we rejoice that if we have trusted in you and turned from our sins, we have this saving faith, this powerful truth within us that leads to greater godliness. We have hope, genuine confidence for eternal life because we're not trusting in our abilities and our wisdom in our plans, but the King of Kings who created all things, who designed before the worlds began that we would know you, that you would pursue us, that we would trust and believe and repent. So to the only wise God, we give praise and honor and glory. We would serve you with greater passion and energy because we've been served by such a gracious and humble and sacrificing servant. Father, help us to know you. Help us to live for you. Help those who see us as a church family know that we're being changed by something supernatural, by something outside of ourselves, by a gospel that is powerful to save. In Jesus' name we pray.